ears wide open. A new series of podcasts provided by Anima Eterna Brügge. Reenacting Schumann, Part 1 June 2023 A weird and unusual situation takes place on the stage of the Concertgebouw in Bruges. Multiple screens, with strange colored lines and speakers, are surrounding the musicians of Anima Eterna Brugge. For rehearsals, that sometimes means only listening carefully an old recording of the Robert Schumann's Piano Concerto, played by a nowadays forgotten pianist, Fanny Davis. What does it mean? What is the goal of all that? Well, the goal is... Kai Kup. The goal of this project is to get an inside perspective on how musicians in the Romantic era were making their decisions. Um, because, of course, we're working as musicians for an audience um, that expects historically informed performances in a repertoire where many people feel that romantic music is something that everyone can understand without extra effort. And the moment you get exposed to the real thing, like you hear in early recordings by famous musicians, you find out how much their concept of romantic performances are is different from what we expect and what we anticipate. So the goal is to understand as performers from an inside perspective how they made their decisions that led to the sound and the emotions and the flexibility that we hear. Nowadays, the normal listener thinks that Romantic music, it's just happened a few decades ago. So actually, we are still in the tradition. And we really know how to do it. But then, confronted with um, authentic recordings from the early uh, nine, um, 20th century or very late uh, 19th century, many of us start laughing because there are... Uh, I, I, I put into um, brackets ridiculous elements about it, yeah? So things which are totally um, exaggerating what, what we did not expect to find in the music. And I, I would like to draw a parallel to, to a different media, which is um, early films. When you, in the year 2023, would decide to make a movie without sound to have music underlining the storyline, then um, you would produce something totally different if you were not trying to use the elements of the early filming era in the 1910s, 20s, expressionistic elements, which nowadays seem totally exaggerated. And... 
um, over the top. But it's just a question of learning the language and learning how to translate it. Yeah, the fascinating moment is that as soon as you hear someone like Josef Joachim perform his own music or the music that he was famous for, you can feel the distance that we have to the repertoire that we think was our own. And therefore, we have a starting point to, like an earlier repertoire, to review and to um, think twice what we took for granted, in order to discover something new and fresh and truly authentic. So it's like um, getting to know someone that you thought you knew, and when you actually meet him or her, it's a completely different experience. And this kind of authentic encounter with truly romantic performance styles is something that we want to, to use as a motivation and as inspiration for own, own performances. Frustratingly, they really played so well. Yeah. <laughs> so it was not just the, the focus that they, they said, yeah, the most important is to give the beautiful performance and the perfection is just second or third position in importance. No, they actually they played really, really perfect in so many senses. And we know from Clara Schumann what an amazing technique she had. She was so well educated that yeah, people all over Europe just were breathless when they listened to her playing. The challenge is to go not only one step, but a full step into the direction of romantic performances of the time to take the inside perspective of our colleagues um, at that time, like 100, 150 years ago. And the vehicle would be the recordings they left. Because by these recordings, um, if you listen to them for the first time, you're just surprised and irritated by the many unexpected things that happen. So in order to um, not just take the pick and choose approach, so you, you pick the one, the elements that you like, but you leave alone what you don't like or what seems to be too much for your taste or whatever, then it's just a half step in the direction of something that's originally or authentically romantic. So a recording by someone like Fanny Davis, who was um, a student of Clara Schumann, and not only a student, she was gifted with 
um, the gift of imitating other people uh, so that we can really um, understand why her contemporaries claim that she was imitating Clara Schumann's own performance most closely because she had this kind of um, talent to imitate other people. So this recording um, especially serves as a good model for something that's as close as we can get to the original performance style of Clara Schumann um, as possible. So it is like an artifact that we found, that we happily discovered as a door that opens the 19th century to us. So in order to go through that door or learn the language, as Midori said, um, we need to leave behind our judgment, what we find is good taste or bad taste, because this is a fact, an artifact that we find. We need to accept that it existed. Um, and this is a method of... Um, um, engaging with this historical information that you would not imagine in any way without this help so that we can really quickly come on eye level with the amount of flexibility, for example, that our um, professional colleagues in earlier times had. So it's a vehicle to get to a more authentic performance practice quickly. But who was the pianist Fanny Davis? And why? Is this recording from 1928 so valuable? Unfortunately, nowadays she's not um, so well known anymore. Laura Graneros. Um, she was born in, in Guernsey, uh, in, in, in England. Um, and um, then she later um, went to Birmingham, where she had her first uh, musical education. She was kind of a enfant... <laughs> um, so um, already when she was very little, she could play very difficult pieces and, and so on. And um, then she went also, of course, to London um, to, to get a bit more of, of, of piano lessons uh, from Charles um, Halle, which was also a very famous pianist. And he recommended that she goes um, to Germany. And she first went to Leipzig uh, in 1883. And then she decided to go um, to Frankfurt to study with, with Clara Schumann. She first thought to go to Franz Liszt, but uh, she didn't like him so much. And uh, yeah, she studied there for a couple of, of years with, with Clara Schumann. And there she also met Johannes Brahms. After the studies, she started immediately touring um, all over Europe and, and she also settled uh, back in, in London and she was even considered as, as the most famous female pianist um, of England um, at that time, yeah. In general, Clara, um, there were um, some pieces, of course, that she uh, taught her students from, from, from her husband and also from Mendelssohn and, and the Romantics, um, but she always also included um, some Baroque pieces like, um, like Bach or Scarlatti and also some classical sonatas so, um, and, of course, some etudes and, and, and so on. So usually the programs of the students were um, were this kind of and also besides um, what is also interesting is that besides what what she or or the students um, learned during the lessons, um, of course they also listened to Clara playing in concert um, and 
yeah, therefore sometimes they had very precise memories of, of how she played and performed certain pieces. Like for example, the Schumann concerto, she, Davies listened to, to Clara perform it uh, publicly. <laughs> recording is from 1928. Um, so um, the, the issue is that, um, of course, um, the first recordings that, that Davis did were in 1909 for Velte Mignon, and then 20 years later um, for there, there were discs, um, recordings for, for Colombia. Um, so there were kind of 20 years, 20 years difference um, between her teaching and the recordings and each of the, the sets of recordings. Um, but um, what is interesting is um, that one of the cycles that she first recorded, so in 1909, um, was uh, the Kinderzenen, the um, of, of Robert Schumann, and she re-recorded um, 20 years later. And actually, her style didn't change that much. So some of the movements are very, very similar. So that kind of proves that actually her style of performance didn't change that much. And also the, the journalists, but also her colleagues, were commenting all the time um, that her style was very similar to the one of, of Clara Schumann. And there was even some mean <laughs> journalist or critic who even said that there was too much imitation of, of the plane of, of Clara Schumann. So, um, of course, these, these, these pianists in this, in this time, um, for them it was extremely important that they had learned this repertoire with the big romantics and they, in a way they saw themselves as the carriers of this tradition and of, of this way of playing. So once you get to know this unexpected way of performing music, um, the question is how much of this is unique and individual or how much of this would be the result of a common style 
or something that many people would share as a concept. So um, in my work, at least, I was always trying to get into the minds of the musicians by reading how they would teach or instruct um, other professional musicians. And that's important. We're talking about information for professionals and by professionals. It's not like treatises for beginners, um, which are much um, more in number. Mostly you get instructions for beginners, but we've been looking for instructions by these people who made the recordings, who talk about how they make their decisions to their students, professional students, or to their colleagues. So it's letters, it's instructions. And there is, um, there com the text comes in at that point. The text then helps to understand the intentional decisions that resulted in what we hear on the recordings. So, I mean, in the 19th century, there were people who would uh, treat the text very differently. Um, I, th I think um, if we have the whole spectrum, um, someone like uh, maybe Franz Liszt would change a lot of things in the on the text, even adding cadenzas, adding a lot of notes, things that were not written. Um, on the other hand, um, Clara Schumann belonged to what was called uh, the conservative movement uh, with Mendelssohn or Reinecke. Um, and they they actually even insisted on not adding uh, things into the music. Um, some things like, for example, preluding would be allowed and um, maybe exceptionally in some kind of cadenzas or in some kind of arrangements um, there would be more liberty in the sense of, of literally changing the notes. Um, but the kind of liberty or the kind of way of reading the text which is different, even if they were a bit more restrained um, than, than all the musicians in the 19th century, um, was more that they, um, they took the composer as, a, as an authority and they wanted to understand what was the message behind, um, what was the image behind the music, and this gave them more liberty. Um, but of course, it's very different from the kind of Urtext mentality that we have nowadays. So without necessarily um, adding notes, they would still play, for example, with more tempo flexibility than what we do nowadays or change slightly the rhythms. Um, it's, it's a bit uh, what, what a singer would naturally do um, when, when they read music and there is a text uh, behind that there are certain, um, yeah, certain notes that are naturally going to be longer, others are going to be shorter and, and, and so on. Um, so I think because in a way they were allowing themselves to, to have more liberties, um, that also meant um, that the performances were more different one to the other. And um, in a way, um, the schools were also quite particular in the sense that you could distinguish very well what was a Liszt student from what is a Clara Schumann student. So in the way, in a way, um, I don't think there was uh, necessarily just one style um, of of performing um, this music or like a common style or so. But there were very different schools and themselves then with 
um, different personalities, musical personalities, and that's why also the different students of, of Clara Schumann performed quite differently between themselves. But it was many times said that um, Davies was the one that um, that played the most, like like Clara. This is why we are in involving the recording, that it serves us as a blueprint to a way to play this music. So we start by really copying everything or embodying what, what we hear to produce exactly that with our own instrument. And after having done that once, or for a period, yeah, with one certain piece, we get used to the language. It's as if um, you really try to get the perfect Italian accent by, by repeatedly listening to one sentence, and then you... You get it. Oh my God. Hilary Metzger. All early recordings are one of the richest, most beautiful sources of historical information because, you know, you can write about things and, and not actually do them. And in fact, that's not surprising. I mean, think of it. You're a parent and you're crossing the street and you say to the kids, red light, we stay on the curb. And that's the normal way to teach them. And what do you do the next time the kids are in the apartment? You cross the street at the red light. I mean, this shouldn't surprise us that when you're a performer, you don't do what you teach. I would argue both are important to know, though, but that's another can of worms. So what's so fascinating about these old recordings is this is what they did. Now, 
There are limitations to recordings to a certain extent. Uh, the technology back then meant that sometimes you can't always hear things, although with technology nowadays, with spectrograms and various things, we can hear much better. There's also the case they couldn't make cuts. So they took one uh, thing, and probably not everything in it, not every detail was exactly how they dreamed of playing the phrase. Okay. But you can really hear so much, and so much that they clearly wanted. And what's fascinating is also to compare the takes that they didn't release. You know, some websites actually have all of them, and so they, you know what they found the most beautiful. This is an incredible resource. Now, in the case of Fanny Davis, yes, she was Clara Schumann's student, and we know that she was Im imitating and playing in this Frankfurt German school in this certain tradition. That is incredibly interesting. Um, in this particular recording, it's from 1928, and it's an English orchestra. It, 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 that may be, in terms of orchestral recording, uh, perhaps less relevant to this particular piece or to a period. But no, recordings in general, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what, what information that gives us. If you consider the time that it took to develop early music to the point that we have it today, um, it took probably about 100 years. Um, when you look at some institutions like the Schola Cantorum Basiliensis uh, that was founded in, I think, 1933, um, and had some predecessors, this is about the distance, the same distance that they had to um, the 18th century repertoire that we are now having to the 19th century repertoire. So it is shifting the focus on what we need to understand from a new perspective. And this is, I think, um, how we can understand and review our own early music uh, traditions, where it came from and how people were trying in the 1920s to project something like abstraction or objectivity to music, regardless whether it was early music from the 18th or 17th century or their contemporary music from the 1920s and 30s. So they had a common aesthetic um, kind of goal to look into both early music and contemporary music composition. And uh, therefore... Um, this kind of early music performance style that's also connected to the Urtext movement, where uh, the aesthetic can be reduced to a slogan like let the music speak for itself, that belongs to an era of audiences that has um, aged more than 100 years. So we're at a moment where we need to review this tradition and look at well, at the distance that we can oversee. And this happens to be the 19th century, or it in, happens to include the 19th century. And if we then have the chance by um, through technology that one of the earliest pianists, professional pianists on, on record, that we can hear him play on recordings, it, um, it fills the gap over many generations. And it contains so much more information than you can ever describe in texts or in, in scores that we can really assume that we have a much more complete picture of what music and performance was like at that time. 
To be continued.